0: Hi, Richard here. Just before we start, want to make it clear that Henry and I spoke in the week before it became public knowledge. Arsene Wenger was leaving Arsenal Football Club at the end of this season. We do talk a little Arsenal. Thought it was important to put that into context. Anyway, let's get on with it. You're listening to Sport Digital and Social with
1: Mr. Richard Clark. If I'm going into a game, I will always tweet a picture of the stadium on my way in, or if I bumped into a fan, he said, Oh, watch so and so, he's playing today. I will tweet that, then I'll get loads of reactions, and it's like having my own private research it. This is not the Gettysburg address we're making here. This is not warm. piece in terms of the space we've got. It's 280 characters, 45, 50 words. There's going to be an element of brevity, of cutting corners, kind of upsetting one or two people, purely because you don't have the space to say, with respect to. On economic grounds, I would say if the Premier League football deal wasn't so huge on Sky, I would say there's a good chance of two newspapers going under, certainly two tabloids.
0: Hi there. On this episode, my guest is Henry Winter. As football correspondent of The Times, he's one of the most respected and influential sports journalists currently working in the UK. Winter's career started well before the social media era, but he's fully embraced the medium and now boasts a Twitter following akin to that of a mid-table Premier League club. This is a wide-ranging conversation we take in the state of sports journalism, the newspaper industry, TV, sport in general, as well as social media. But it's all underpinned by the thoughtful analysis and humility Winter's readers will know so well. As ever, subscribe on Apple Podcasts, Google Play, or wherever you get your podcasts. Also, you can follow on Instagram at and Social, all spelled out. And then there's my website, Mr. Richard Clark, for my other podcast, Football Indonesia, my blog on sport and digital, and to contact me. All those links will be in the show notes as well. Anyway, I'll let Henry introduce himself, and we'll crack on.
1: Hi, my name is Henry Winter. I'm Chief Football Writer of The Times in London.
0: Henry, thanks for speaking to me. First question, how did you get to where you are today? Just give me the brief biography of your route to The Times.
1: I've got the job now I've wanted since I was thirteen fourteen, so it was just a case of sort of shaping education with some fairly compliant tutors and professors to allow me to get to this position so at university i I worked on the uh, the, the student newspaper, graduated with a degree of sorts and walked up and down Fleet Street as it's known in London, where the newspapers at the time were in the in the mid eighties knocked on doors and and blagged my way in i mean it's it is so much Easier now in terms of putting your name around because of the joys of social media. I mean, I get sent probably about 20 blogs a week by students, mainly in the UK, but also around the world, who want to break into sports journalism. And the great thing about Twitter in particular is you've got instant access to journalists.
0: Would what you have done then work today?
1: I still think there is an element of. Building up contacts, going to training grounds, going to matches, and trying to convince people. I just think the immediacy with technology now is just fantastic, because a 17-year-old who's writing a blog on Stoke at school, and I, I speak from experience. I go around to schools and talk to talk to kids. If they're good, they can send a link to their um, to their blog, their site, to any sports editor in the world. And the sports editor, if he if he likes the the opening paragraph or gets a sense from the uh, from the email that this kid's got something about them, then then he or she, whoever the sports editor is, will look at it. And so there is that immediacy. You can get behind, you know, you can get into the office very easily nowadays
0: how important is the skill of writing still as a journalist because we live in a social media world it's full of visual content my argument is the visual is slowly eating the written word but is writing still the basis of it and storytelling
1: video is huge nowadays partly because the, the the commercial element to it you can wrap around ads on it whereas with words and certainly the print media that's that's obviously becoming more of an issue although newspapers aren't quite in terminal decline, as everyone says there. I work for the Times in London and our circulation is going up. There's never been so much football coverage in particular in the mainstream media and in particular print journalism as there is now. I think it can work very easily with uh, social media. So that's not so much a problem i think they can all work in terms of you know video is incredibly important and it's interesting i mean i go to what 120 130 matches a year and at the end of it you'll probably see a quarter of the people in the press box do live blogs whether facebook live or whatever or youtube i mean ian cheeseman at uh, at manchester city is, is a classic case in point i'm sure you know him he was very established manchester radio reporter with the bbc decided to move on. Now he's got this this vlog and it's it's huge. It's about sort of 15 minutes and because he's so well-known, he talks to fans, he talks to players, he talks to journalists that matches and gets a, obviously it's a fairly one-eyed view because he's a Manchester City fan. It's, he's targeted all Manchester City but then he gets local shed companies. Sounds a bit weird that but he, you know, he gets local companies to uh, sponsor ads in it and he, he makes a good living from that. So absolutely, video is very important but in terms of I mean, everyone assumes that all these different strands of journalism are competing against each other. They're not. As you say, it's all about storytelling, whether it's on radio, whether it's on Facebook Live, whether it's in print, whether it's a book. And I've just written a book of 120,000 words. And it's still the same elements of storytelling and grabbing people's attention as in a 280 character tweet.
0: But that skill of writing both you and I got into journalism through writing, presumably somebody at at some point said, you're half decent at this writing lark, you should express yourself better. Is that writing element as important as it was? Because even back in the day when I started, people were saying, well, it's not about writing, it's about contacts, you know, and now is it about writing, is it about contacts and visuals? So is writing being eroded?
1: I think good writing and good contacts equals content, and everyone wants quality of content. And some of that is video, but you know, you, you look at the major news stories in the past 18 months. You know, a lot of them have been driven by outstanding pieces of writing. Whether Carol Kovalla in the in the Guardian over Cambridge Analytica, whether you go over to America and the stuff about Harvey Weinstein, that was that was New York Times. And those pieces are under the New Yorker. I mean, those pieces are obviously being put online pretty swiftly. But it is down to properly resourced quality writing from the established mainstream media writers. So absolutely, the quality of writing is key. If I look at the best writers, uh, sorry, the best read, most read journalists in the country, I look at Martin Samuel at the Daily Mail in the UK, he's an outstanding writer. And if I'm getting emails from bloggers and they ask me to look at their blog, I will switch off pretty quickly if the actual quality of the writing is not very good because you've got to capture people's attention and you're not going to do it, however good your contacts are, if you can't string a sentence together properly. So absolutely, writing is quality of writing is very important because ultimately, we're in the communications industry and whether you're a great television presenter or whether you're a great writer in the print media, it's about capturing someone's attention and sustaining that attention. I read blogs and I switch off, to, off after two paragraphs. I think there's lots of stats, one or two interesting views in there. I'm sorry, it's not entertaining. You know, when you go and see a film, you want to be entertained and you want to be informed. But the actual flow and the presentation is as key, sometimes as the story itself.
0: How much has social media impacted your job? Because you started before it existed. So in what ways has it impacted it?
1: Absolutely. I mean, I started in 86. Twitter particularly was exploding in 2009 10. I took that into the World Cup and I realised its potential there in terms of its pure immediacy. Because what I quite like the idea is if I'm watching England training and a player, God forbid, gets injured, I can put that story out there immediately with, you know, occasionally you'll put a photograph out, maybe a little bit of video out. Obviously, it's a player's injury, you do it in a certain respectful way. I wouldn't show a player being injured lying on the ground or being helped into an ambulance. I think that's disrespectful. But, you know, you, because of the nature of the job is that you are put in the heart of, the, of of the news, you can react very quickly. And then you've got time to do a more considered piece. What are the ramifications of this uh, injury for club, for country, for the player's career, commercially, whatever. You've got time to do that. So they all actually um, bleed into each other, which is really useful. So in terms of the impact of social media, I've looked at all these things that are happening, like Instagram and Snapchat. The one that works best for me editorially is Twitter, because of the immediacy of it, because you can post something incredibly quickly. And I'll be at training with probably another 30 English journalists, and if something happens, like a player goes down injured, or England try a new routine, get Harry Kane not to take corners, which would be novel, Mm -hmm. then it's, you know, it's the fastest person who is there to actually almost own that, story, own that content, and transport it around the world. We have this very strange system in the UK where television is slightly concerned about getting a second source on a story so even if the reporter from whoever it is sky or the bbc sees something that happens in england training they have to get it confirmed they have to tell the news desk at which point they are 30 40 seconds behind the rest of us who've just sort of banged it out there on however many followers we've got on twitter so absolutely twitter in terms of my jobs just completely transformed it
0: but you talk there about the way you've got to get news out immediately on Twitter. The, that's the sort of a rat-a-tat-tat of news, story after story after story. But then your writing has become more analytical, taking a step back. It didn't used to be that way, so it's affected the cadence of your work as well.
1: Well, it, which is great because it means you can focus more on the the writing as well as the actual storytelling. It's not simply a news story you're telling because you've got that out within seconds. I look at social media and Twitter in particular and think how can it improve me as a, a journalist and so if I'm going into a game I will always tweet a picture of the stadium on my way in or if I bumped into a fan he said I'll oh, watch so he's playing today I will tweet that then I'll get loads of reactions and it's like having my own private research army because they will say oh Andrew Robertson watch him on the overlap for Liverpool he's fantastic he's far better than Mourinho he's the best left back we've had at Liverpool for 30 years look at Trent Alexander on the other side, Saint-Alexander-Arnold, and just look at how he's coming. He's only a kid, but he's sort of developing. And you just put little things like that out, and then you get an amazing reaction back. So I use it in a, almost in a fairly sort of clinical way to actually inform me on, on matches. Because if I've got, say, I don't know how many followers I've got who are Liverpool fans, probably... I don't know, maybe 70,000, 80,000 know, know far more about Liverpool than I do. And if I tweet somebody, then they can react to it, and then they can actually fill in all the the, the many gaps to my knowledge. So it's incredibly useful for me for that. Also, if I, I do a lot of interviews during the season. So say if I go and interview, who did I interview recently? Eric Dyer at Tottenham Hotspur in England. I will go back through all of Eric's recent tweets, going back 18 months. He's not a prolific tweeter. And see little things in there, which then help me in terms of uh, doing the interview. And then when I've written that piece, I will then put it out on, uh, on Twitter and loads of people who are either interested in Eric Dyer or interested in Tottenham or England can then react to it. So in terms of this digital platform, it's an absolute godsend.
0: Now does that does open you up to where well, you are reading your haters, therefore. How do you cope with that? I mean, you can just... I love not, it. You love it. I love it. I think it's
1: hilarious. <laughs> absolutely. Because, look, I've got a lot of friends who are female presenters. The abuse they get is absolutely disgusting, and Twitter doesn't do enough to clamp down on that. I've got a lot of friends who are black footballers, and the abuse they get is absolutely disgusting, and Twitter is not quick enough to uh, to clamp down on that. You know, I'm a white journalist who goes around going to matches. Any abuse I get, I'm just going to laugh off, because it's just daft i mean i'm just lucky that i'm in the situation that i am that i'm in but the misogyny on twitter and the racism on twitter and the homophobia on twitter is just it's disgraceful and you know politicians get it footballers get it presenters get it many people get it on twitter so you're not going to get someone like me complaining because all i get is you put on a bit of weight mate, or um you need to work harder so you know, that's not going to affect me. Well, I do find Twitter, which I, if I've written a piece or I've tweeted something and it gets a lot of emotional reaction from people, I think that's good because that actually just reminds me how important football, how important certain issues, individuals, players, causes are to people within football. So I think it's always very useful just to have that sort of constant reminder of the sort of, of how important football is in, in people's lives and to be have that occasional much but in terms of in terms of the sort of racism misogyny and the homophobia that goes on, on on social media i really do think that twitter certainly doesn't do enough to clamp down on but in terms of any abuse i get i've never blocked anyone because i'm a journalist and i think it's wrong personally because it's communication industry i've never muted anyone i wouldn't know how to so uh, people can carry on slaughtering me. the only tweet that I think I've kept was from um, some punter who says listen mate the only reason I follow you is to discover what uh, to see what shit you come up with next
0: (laughs) do you reply to people ever yeah absolutely
1: yeah and what you do with Twitter without giving too many trade secrets away is that if you always reply you always put their name in there it just completely disarms them so someone who is sort of abusing me I mean I've been critical of Vayner for about what's Six seven years on Twitter now, and I've had loads of, of abuse back from Arsenal fans saying no, it's great. she'd have a statue, and then the Invincibles, and all that. And absolutely, you apply to uh, to people, even if they're abusive. I mean, I'm not James Blunt's quality of uh, hmm. of sort of undermining people and just with why comes back comebacks. But what I will always do is uh, if someone has a go at me even if it's just pure abuse, but their names in there, which is easy to get from their handle. I always mention it in, uh, in a reply. Plus also with certain replies, you have to actually date it and name it. Otherwise people would use those replies to, So say I just replied to someone, well that's a load of nonsense. If I don't say that's a load of nonsense relating to Pickford shouldn't be picked for England, or that's a load of nonsense and put their name in there, absolutely guarantee. And I see it so many times to other people. I'm amazed what people haven't tweeted onto it. All those all those tweets just get retweeted completely through with something else just to undermine that individual. But uh, that's a, that was the sort of trial and error that I've discovered over the years. So always name it.
0: Is there a any formal training you've ever had, either at the Telegraph or the Times, or any sort of code of conduct that you've got no. with your newspaper, or are you just learning on the fly?
1: You absolutely learn on the fly. And um, I go in and listen to talks, and I've heard, had talks at, when I was at the Telegraph and now at the Times, and I go, that's all very interesting, but you can't learn this. <laughs> you can't learn this in a classroom. You can only learn it from trial and error. As long as you're polite and... I think, you know, not really an issue with me, but I've noticed it with, with some people on Twitter. It's when they, it's actually what time they tweet. You know, there's some journalists, one or two journalists, you see tweeting late at night, you go, not a good idea, because it's called TUI, tweeting under the influence. And it's dangerous, you know, just put your phone away and, you know, take a more a saner approach, more clear-eyed approach to an issue in the, uh, in the morning. I am quite aware that within half an hour of a match, particularly a huge match. The emotions of football fans are particularly raw. So I don't just throw out a sort of a cruel tweet, however true it may be in in terms of the reality of the situation. You know, you don't slag someone off when they're coming out of the funeral.
0: Do you, in many ways, feel you are a brand? Because players talk about themselves as brands now. and Media personalities talk about themselves as brands. Well, a journalist, in a sense, is a brand because you're Henry Winter of The Times, and there's certain things that go along with that. So do you treat it that way? This is the sort of thing that I should tweet or not tweet, and this is the way that I should do it? I
1: don't buy this journalist a brand argument. I just, I think we're bylines. I think we're fortunate that because of the people that we work for, we're able to get into the thick of the action. But I don't think we're brand. I mean, I could probably count on the Probably about five or six times I've been offered commercial things of like um, fizzy drink companies wanting to plant, sort of, well, not plant, but give you viral videos because they want it to go out there and come out in an organic way. I absolutely wouldn't do that. I am very aware that, say if I stop at a, a, a cafe on the, on the M6 at two o'clock in the morning after a drive back from a match at Manchester City or, or Liverpool or Manchester United, I won't mention the name of that cafe because people go, oh, did you get a free meal there? So, you know, you, you are sort of fairly aware of that. In terms of loyalty to the newspaper, I find it amazing that journalists have their company's name in their handle. Like one of my friends, Danny Taylor, is DT Guardian. And I just find that strange, A, because he might want to move jobs. But also, it's about him. I know he's been put in that situation. He's at that match because the Guardian, the Observer, are paying for him to be there. But it's still very much him. And I think, actually, those who do have their media organization, like a lot of the Sky television people do, in their handle, I do think that they have more... I look at some of their tweets and think they're far more responsible and they're far more aware of the fact that they've got an employer. I did ring up the Times once because I just wanted to have a go at someone who was associated with the Times. And I just wanted to say, not because I needed clearing by them, I just said, listen, as a courtesy, I'm going to have a go at this person on Twitter. Just to warn you because there'll be backlash against them, which, by the way, they completely deserve. That was Kelvin McKenzie. So, yeah, I'm respectful of my employer but it would never influence what I would tweet. But then I am at Henry Winter. I'm not at Henry Winter at the Times or whatever.
0: Yeah, I would agree with you. It's not good to have your newspaper in your handle because if you do move, you've got to rename it and you've got, you've got 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 to pull them across with you in some sort of way. Yes, there's ways you can do it, but it's clunky and unnecessary. So you should you yeah. just name just it. Just on
1: it. that, when I left the Telegraph, I wasn't so aware of it at the time because I was just sort of, I was busy working on a book during my uh, gardening leave. But there was a little bit of a debate back at the Telegraph about whether they, should, whether they could keep my Twitter handle and whether the followers that I had acquired during my employment to the Telegraph technically belonged to them. And I think they probably might have had a bit more of a case if I was at Henry Winter underscore Telegraph. But as it was just at Henry Winter, that debate within the Telegraph just lasted about
0: couple of minutes that's that's interesting actually because they might have had a case if it had been henry winter a telegraph and they'd set it up for you because there's been a situation Mm. where numerous accounts have been set up by organizations for their reporters and so you've got to put an email address it's all got to go in a certain way i'm sure that wouldn't happen these days but with a an older twitter address in the days where it might have been set up for a reporter that would have been interesting 'Cause there was the yeah, old definitely. there was the old argument back in the day that when a reporter moved job, whether their contacts books, if it was held on a computer owned by the company, whether their contacts stayed with them or stayed with the company. And it's in that sort of same bracket. Interesting. Yeah. Interesting.
1: On that my contacts did mysteriously disappear.
0: <laughs> <laughs> One other thing that as changed, of course, is, and this directly involves me and you, I would think, is that clubs became their own entities. Arsenal, I ran Mm. Arsenal's content for years. And I got a little bit of stick at times by journalists saying, should you be here? Should you be there? This is for this set of the media or that set of the media? Should you be? It wasn't bad. It wasn't a major issue, but it was always there. How have journalists per se and yourself reacted to clubs becoming media companies or at least having media arms, strong ones.
1: And they are very strong arms. And I look at some of the, the work and the content that's being put out now. I think it's fantastic. I think we've seen it, and, and you would have seen it even more than I, the, the actual content for things like player announcements, goal celebrations that Bristol City do, I mean, it's fantastic. I mean, some of the stuff that Expert City have done on promoting their um, their new season tickets. It's absolutely brilliant. Crystal Palace have got a fantastic team, Arsenal have got a fantastic team. And I, I've been to matches in Europe and, and sat down and um, next to the social media guy or girl from um, Sevilla and, I was saying, and, and there was a the guy and he was saying, well, I'm on my year out and um, I did a bit with uh, one of the sort of the English clubs and Sevilla were looking to take someone from, an English football club, because and Young, who spoke a bit of Spanish, because of that innovation. I think it's absolutely brilliant. There is an element of us and them. I can understand why clubs are so obsessed with content. I do find if I get an interview with one of their players, it's quite rare that a club will retweet it, certainly a Premier League club, because they'll always go, well, it's a pity that, you know, our star midfielder has given all this content to Henry Winter and the Times, and, you know, we'd much rather have it on our own. You know, and I understand that rivalry. But I think on the whole, it's fairly respectful. I think when we go into press conferences together, the sort of digital side of a club will respect the, uh, the, the embargo. But I've never actually seen it as a particular war between journalists and clubs because, I mean, I, I will probably get about 40 to 50 emails a week. From English clubs probably half of them premier league clubs the rest football league clubs asking is it just saying listen, so like Huddersfield and Wigan one premier league one championship, sorry, league one We're having a sleepover to raise money for homeless people Can you just tweet the fact this is going on? There's a link to uh, a sort of just giving page thing I get it from clubs a lot your old club arsenal They did an absolutely brilliant thing at christmas where they opened up the emirates and they had, and they cooked meals for about so 40, 50 homeless people and they laid on some entertainment and it was absolutely brilliant. So I put something out on that. And actually, ironically, the club themselves then followed up because I think they would be a little bit shy in the first place. They didn't want to sort of trumpet the fact that they were doing this. I found out about it. I said, this is really good. I mentioned it on social media and then it, and then it actually sort of worked the other way around. But absolutely, the clubs will be, um, you know, you can help clubs out with, with a lot of stuff. I mean, I get messages from clubs saying, kickoffs change. Can you just alert people who might be traveling who maybe don't follow us but are away fans? And they need that information. But the other thing that clubs are very aware about is the power of players now. I mean, players have huge social media followings, often bigger than their own clubs. So the players will give you stuff i'll get dms from players and say by the way i don't want to make a big fuss about this but my foundation is having this event on on tuesday i had an event last week and i don't want to crow about it on my own site but it'd be absolutely brilliant if you could mention it and you have a look at it and if it's a good thing and it's i mean wayne really going around a hospice or michael carrick on his foundation then absolutely you uh, you, you plug that partly because i think it's Actually, it's easier if I spend a lot of time criticising, particularly English players for underperforming performing in tournaments, actually to show the other side of them that they do a lot of work for charity and, and sometimes they can maybe take the criticism a little bit more. So clubs would absolutely love to have total control over their players' social media sites because it is absolutely huge and it would bring more people into to, to, to the club, sort of commercially and perhaps even through the turnstiles. But the players obviously want a broader reach. They feel that they've got their own clubs tied up. So actually, they're more than happy to spread the word on what was effectively a more neutral platform, which is a journalist platform. Because obviously, you know, if you follow Arsenal, Arsenal's followers are obviously all hardcore Arsenal fans. But actually, they want to spread the word about some brilliant work that Pert is doing or Mesut is doing, actually sometimes it makes sense to, uh, to involve a, a more neutral platform, a journalist platform which spreads it to a, to a different market.
0: Yeah, that's absolutely true that it is uh, seen as more neutral and not rather than the club just pushing out the party line. That was always one thing I was very concerned around at Arsenal. But what I was going to talk about was the YouTube channels. You talk about Arsenal. Well, Arsenal Fan TV have been incredibly successful In creating a YouTube channel there One of many that's out there Man United, Liverpool have got theirs of course But Arsenal is really above all the others In terms of reach and the content it produces Your thoughts on those Because you talked about that half an hour After the end of the game Emotions being high Well that's the sweet spot For many of those YouTube channels In particular Arsenal fan TV Is that a good thing or a bad thing Because it can be a little bit of rant TV at times
1: But in a way, for the fans, it's the only thing, because that is the time they're coming out of grounds. So Robbie's going to be standing there with his camera, and Arsenal fans, who are going to be absolutely livid over what's happened, or they're going to be ecstatic over a good performance, then uh, they're they're going to want to to let rip. So that half hour is just basically what they've, they've got. It is the sweet spot, but it's the only spot for them. I think they're fantastic. The one issue is they get absolutely ridiculed by fans of other clubs. I mean, if you go on another fans forum when Arsenal have just lost, all you can see are, you know, meltdown, Arsenal fans TV, meltdown incoming. I think it is, it doesn't reflect the club and probably all the the, the fans. If you've got four, five very emotional fans after a game banging on about the same thing. But in terms of, you know, for journalism, for, for cheap journalism, you know, we can very easily say, oh, Arsenal fans in meltdown. Because of what they've been saying on Arsenal fans TV, I think it must be an absolute nightmare for the club. I would imagine that, that, you know, the club are going, well, A, because someone else is making money, but B, because they are, you know, it's not on the club website and it is, it's very, it's often very critical of the club.
0: Yeah, I mean, I'm not involved anymore, but for me, my argument would always be, well, as an Arsenal fan or whatever fan, the club website, obviously I was running Arsenal's uh, content for many years, we're just one of the things you will read. You will probably read the website. You'll probably watch Arsenal Fan TV. You'll probably read the Sun and the Mirror and the Times and the Telegraph, and you'll get different things from each one. So I didn't ever see it as an either-or. I saw it all as an and, personally. And we were just... Mm. As long as we did... We told our story, which is a version of the club story, effectively with gravitas, with emotion, with respect, told good stories in an engaging way. I was fine with that, but I certainly didn't expect them just to consume one aspect of the media. I mean, I, like many people, on a Sunday, for years I got the News of the World and the Sunday Times, which are different in terms of the, the way they tell every story, every single story, different politics, tabloid, broadsheet, but... I consume them both for different things. That was my, my take on it. One totally.
1: And, and and the thing with fans, you can't kick fans. So if they are getting spoon-fed platitudes from the club, they're going to react against that. I mean, I've always hoped that the, the club media outlets would stay anodyne, would be party-line. But actually, if you look at them, they're not. Arsenal, when you were there, and now Manchester United. I mean, Paddy Crane absolutely whips into... Uh, to some of the performances on NUTV, some of the phone ins they have there. I mean, are really, you know, they're up with sort of 606 and talk sport for sort of fans having a rant. So I actually quite respect the, uh, the, the clubs for actually reflecting what the fans are thinking. Obviously, they've got to be respectful of, of the manager and respectful about language. But on the whole, I think they do allow a fairly vocal you know, reflection of, of what fans' feelings are. It's not Pravda. On these these clubs on hold, but I completely agree with you. I think they can all work together. I, I absolutely have no problem, and I'm still slightly surprised that clubs, the bigger clubs, don't work more in tandem. So if I do an interview with a player, I know they want that content on their website, but it's still, still, you know, you can have part ownership of the store, if You say, right, what time are you going to put that out on your website or on your social media feed? Ten thirty. Okay, we'll send us a link, and then we'll link in with it as well so that we can get some reflective glory or interest in it. So actually, you're using the club's website and digital platform as a platform for other ideas, but actually it's a bit like Sky Television, having sort of different, you know, BT on their platform. You know, you can still make money out of it and you can still get everyone under the same umbrella, even if it's not necessarily you providing the content. I still think clubs have got to be a little bit cuter. They're still a bit paranoid about mainstream media.
0: Yeah, I think, I mean, just to come back on that, I mean, the, the argument would be, whether this is right or wrong, the argument would be, well, if a club, and this is not specific to Arsenal, I don't want to talk specifically about Arsenal, but, but all clubs, if they endorse a particular media outlet for one thing, then are they yeah. endorsing that particular media outlet? And of course, that'll be at times, why are you endorsing Sky when Frank Lampard or Jamie Redknapp yeah. has said this about our club? That's the argument you get back. So you end up in so often the situation where you're scared of one scenario happening. So you don't do anything, which is I agree with you. I think it's it needs to shift. But that's the sort of corner you get backed into, I tend to find. So moving on to fans content more generally, there's almost a democratization of sports journalism that's happened in the social media area. You've got everyone can create their own content. It used to be fanzines, podcasts. Now you've got YouTube video channels. Now, does that, in your opinion, weaken mainstream established sports journalism because everyone can do it? Or does it make it stronger because you need the quality, the cream to rise to the top and people will, want more cream rising to the top because there's so much out there and so much of it by definition will be not so good.
1: You look at the people who are followed most on social media, say like Paul Joyce, who's the Times man in in Liverpool. He puts out in his tweets, are fantastic, they're incredibly brief, about 50 characters at most, but they are absolutely devastating. They are Van Dijk will sign at two o'clock tomorrow. Saint Alexander-Arnold will make his debut against so-and-so tomorrow. And if you've got that connection, in a strange way, the explosion of social media has actually highlighted the quality of the contacts of individual journalists. Because there's so much, uh, so much nonsense out there, there's sort of the in-the-know people who, who sort of claim to know it. But actually, you look at this, you know, Matt Law at The Telegraph, he tweets something, you know pretty much, it's gonna, well, you know it's going to be true. If he tweets and team news three hours before uh, England themselves announced the team, then you'll know it's true. And the thing about that is that that's not just of editorial importance. The world we work in now with the gambling element, there are so many people following the journalists who get it right, like Paul Joyce, like Matt Law, just to see what they are tweeting, and because it will affect the, the betting markets. So actually, the fact that there are loads of other people out there, and now everyone's got a digital platform and we're all citizens journalists out there, in a strange way, has actually just gone to highlight the quality and the contacts of the mainstream journalists in inverted commas, like Matt Law, all that, Paul Joyce, like Matt Norton, like Danny Taylor, individuals like that. You know, when they say something on Twitter, people know it's gospel and it's true, whereas with respect of it's... Kevin from Milton Keynes, who quite likes Manchester United, who tweets something about their potential transfer targets. People aren't going to take that seriously. Just because he's got a keyboard and the Twitter account doesn't mean he knows what's going on.
0: And with the wider journalism market as well, and you've seen the New York Times has had a Trump bump with people needing or feeling they need more quality journalism to inform themselves in what is a very volatile political time. Is that increasingly applying in sports journalism? It's a a similar point to the one you've just made, that people need the quality and it's affecting the business models of, it could positively affect the business models of newspapers in general, because they just need something of more quality, greater gravitas, and just got more journalism behind it, more skill behind it
1: more skill and more resources and the fact is that uh, there's so much resources being ploughed into to, to journalism now and, you know you mentioned the New York Times New York Times is, if you go to New York you buy the New York Times it's brilliant you spend four hours reading it and it's fantastic but you can get it online now obviously there's a huge debate about paywalls at the moment but people who buy the the, the Times app, you know, we've got more and more, you know, hundreds of thousands of them have got it now. So I don't know what the cost of it is, the price of a coffee. So people are happy to pay for quality content, content that they can trust, views that they're interested in or they don't necessarily always agree with. But you mentioned the Trump bump earlier. I was looking at Twitter about sort of three years ago thinking, has it? Reach the crest of the wave. Is it going to dip? Is it time to go and move into another form of sort of digital outlet? Which I feel, you know, I know a lot of people moving onto sort of Snapchat. But I I was slightly concerned because I love Twitter because of the brevity and the immediacy. But I thought, is it actually has it run its course? And then Trump comes along, and then suddenly, you know, Trump's been the best thing that's happened to Twitter for for years because. I mean, I wouldn't say the World War Three is going to break out. Probably, it's going to be announced at three o'clock in the morning by Trump on Twitter. So, I mean, I found I mean Osama bin Laden being shot or captured or whatever happened to him. I found that out through Phil Neville. I mean, it's bizarre, <laughs> because, you know, because the Nevilles, as ever, being busybody Nevilles, they're the first people up in the. In the you know it's certainly in the UK, and there was Phil Neville on his way to the gym at five o'clock in the morning, getting amazing news about the seals and something like So that is, you know, whether you necessarily think that Phil Neville should rival Newsnight as your main source of news. The fact is is that he is tweeting about it in the morning. So you know, the, the whole sort of Trump thing. Obviously, everyone's got their opinions on him, but the broader his broader impact on Twitter and the importance and significance of Twitter as the first port of call for news is undeniable.
0: Tonally, it's important, though, on Twitter, you were talking before about being positive around clubs, the the Arsenal homeless thing over Christmas. It's important to present people in the round and not just be relentlessly critical or even relentlessly analytical because people get fatigued by the negativity on social and ground down by it.
1: Yeah, I, mean, it's a bit, I feel a little bit for Piers Morgan. Words that not you, many sure? People would, Are you sure? Would because, you sure, Henry? You sure? Well, the thing about Piers, that's he's right on Wenger. But the thing about it is that because he, it's the way he keeps on saying it, I think you do need an element of respect for the man and what he's achieved. You know, I mean, I'm critical of Wenger, but I w- hope, if you can, in a 280 character tweet, show some respect as well as say, listen, he's gone too far. So I absolutely agree with you. It is a, it is a balance in terms of, uh, getting the, um, get, getting the right tone. But you know, this is not the Gettysburg address we're making here. This is not warm piece in terms of the space we've got. It's 280 characters. It's, you know, whatever that is, sort of 45, 50 words. So there's going to be an element of brevity of cutting corners and kind of upsetting one or two people purely because you don't have the space to say with respect to. But absolutely, you've, you've occasionally thrown a nice tweet about someone
0: just a couple more why given the strength of sporting culture in england have we never had successful sports dailies like you see in spain or italy
1: because of the power of the newspapers so if you go to any country in the world no one has the breadth and depth of a national press like we do If you go to the united states they've got some amazing newspapers there chicago new york l.a but they don't really have a national. They've got USA Today. They don't really have a national. one. Whereas we've got, and I mean, it's extraordinary the, the amount. I mean, it still surprises me how many national newspapers. We've got 10 big national newspapers in this country daily and Sunday as well. And the quality of the sports coverage has grown and grown and grown. Well, I wrote a book on England that I went and looked back on 1966. And there were about three pages at most on England winning the World Cup. Now... There would be two supplements, one on the social significance of England winning, one on the footballing significance of winning. It would be front page, back page, there'd be editorials, you know, it'd be absolutely huge. So I just think if you look at The Guardian, they have Michael Cox who does a lot of their tactical stuff. There wasn't that around about some 15 years ago. There's far more space, there's far more scope, there's far more detailed analysis. I think that's partly been driven by a lot of the uh, analytical stuff on football, it's been floating around on social media and um, mainstream media and newspapers in particular have caught up with that. So I think that, uh, you know, that's inevitably we're reacting to that and that's expanding. I have to say, and i would never use the phrase golden age, but in terms of the quantity and quality of football coverage at the moment, of matches, of interviews, of stories, I just think the, uh, the mainstream media, if you want to build it around print, which obviously bleeds into social media and radio and television and podcasts, which all of us do under the banner of The Times. I don't think it's it's unrivaled in history.
0: So, I mean, it's interesting because television came along and journalists back in the day used to talk to me about how they thought it would be the death knell for newspapers and then more TV coverage of games came along and you didn't get descriptive reports so much. But newspapers have adapted. Now social media has come along, and you're telling me that newspapers have adapted yet again and have found a footing. But have they found a business case to go with that footing? In your opinion, Definitely. you're arguing yes? yes,
1: absolutely. I mean, we're, we're we're making. I mean, I think The Times has well, been going for its illustrious career two hundred years. I think probably made money only for about a quarter of that. It is making money now. It is. I think the more fashionable sport becomes, and football was always a difficult sell for broadsheet advertisers, but I think the more of that is, that is on television. I mean, look, Radio 5 wouldn't exist without Sky and the Premier League and the matches, because you know they've just, what they've done and the Premier League has done, and obviously the television broadcast has done, is provide content. So I can go to five huge matches a week, that five app pages and an inside spread. So they have given us content. It's not that the content die. You know, we are all working together in a way. Television provides this great spectacle. We reflect it immediately online and then um, on the apps and on, on digital websites and newspapers the, uh, the, the the next day. And that is absolutely huge. Television has just been massive for us. I mean, on economic grounds, I would say if Premier League football deal wasn't so huge on Sky, I would say... There's a good chance of two newspapers going under, certainly two tabloids, but they won't because of this obsession with football in the country, because it's just reflected across all uh, all outlets. A
0: young person getting in, trying to get in, in this day and age, what advice would you give them?
1: Blog, blog and blog, and,
0: and don't blog. send it to you. No, <laughs> no,
1: do send it to me. I get I get loads, and I'm I mean like next day actually at, um at the emirates there's a raise your game and i will sit behind a desk for seven hours and i'll probably have 40 50 people who are trying to break into uh into journalism and uh, this is why i'm kicking it out and, and troy Townsend and arsenal host it willingly and you'll sit there and you'll talk to these you know these bright young journalists There have never been so many journalism schools in this country there have never been so many sports journalism courses and there've never been so many football journalism courses. You know, you can go and study how to be Paul Joyce or Matt Law or whoever for three years at university at Derby. I and, mean, you know, this is serious stuff. So there are so many of them coming out. Now, my one concern is <laughs> they are not going to be that so many jobs for them all to go to and, and some of them are going to go and work for clubs and some of them are going to go and work, you know, rewriting press releases for the Gas Board and they will be all going to PR. There's an element of that. But the more people you've got coming out of school and university who want to be sports journalists, inevitably the quality is going to be good. So I look at the blogs, make them entertaining, make the first paragraph. The first paragraph is your shop window. I'm going to walk past the shop window unless it's got something that grabs my attention in there. I would say probably 80% of the blogs that I get sent, first paragraphs are not particularly inspiring and too stat-filled. I want emotion. I want something to catch my eye. I think, oh, I want to read on. I wish I'd been at that. That sounds good. Look at how it's, you know, it's being written up here. But also write against the clock, because anyone can write a beautiful piece if you spend seven hours on it. You try writing against the clock where you have to write 1,200 words, and the final word goes at the final whistle. So, you know, write against the clock as well as write beautifully. But just please make sure the first paragraph entertaining.
0: Yeah, journalism school it used to be. Was it 25%, 40% of the marks was just on the first, on the top line? That's how you're marked at journalism school where you used to be back in the day. Get your
1: your joking intro and run for home.
0: (laughs) And just finally, the future of the profession itself vis-a-vis social, is it going to be more about social? Are we going to get journalists, wannabe journalists, coming in, not through blogging but because they're great on social? Is that going to be as important? Definitely.
1: I mean, I'd probably change jobs because of social media. I think the Times looked at my Twitter's following and they thought, right, this is, we want a bit of that. Let's see if we can bring people together, whether it's worked or not. But it's absolutely people will, you will be expected. I think Martin Sandman is an exception that he doesn't have a Twitter follower. I think they will, people will automatically, it's like players. When Rumi's agent goes into renegotiate with Everton or goes into renegotiate with Nike, they will look at his Instagram and Twitter following, see it's 40 million people. And obviously the club and the sponsors will think, well, that's a fantastic route for us. We want a bit of that. And they'll, they'll pay for it. On a far timely scale, I think journalists, when they move jobs, they will absolutely people look at their social media following. If I go on any radio or television program or go on a fan's fanzine or podcasts or whatever, absolutely guarantee on the way in i say, oh, can you tweet the fact you're in here, take a picture of the microphone or whatever, and then can you retweet the, uh, the, the podcast or the program is afterwards? Absolutely. And that's why we all work together. You know, journalism nowadays is like being David Thompson. You're decathlete. You're expected to do a bit of everything. And ultimately, you're a journalist. You just do things in short form on social media or long form
0: in print. Henry Winter, thank you very much.
1: My pleasure. You've been listening to Sport, Digital and Social with Mr. Richard Clark. Rate, review, and subscribe on iTunes. You can find Richard on Twitter, Facebook, and Instagram by searching for at Mr. Richard Clark or at his website, mrrichardclark.com.